0: Go ahead and um, you can open to Ezekiel 28. That's going to be the first passage that we're in. The rest of the passages should be on your passage list. So I did Ezekiel 28 because it's, it was too long really to include on the passage list. Um, and so we're going, to, we're going to be there first. I wanted to take a moment because it's been a couple of weeks to just review just briefly where we've been and kind of what we're talking about in, over the last just the last few weeks. We have, we've kind of, we had already talked about God the Father and his creation of the world. And then we stepped into just a few weeks ago um, talking about God's creation of the unseen realm, the things that we don't see, and trying to see what the Bible has to say about the unseen realm and at least get our, our kind of compass pointed in the direction that it seems like the Bible is pointing. And when it comes to the unseen realm, it's very difficult, I think, at times to to say a lot of really cold, hard facts because the Bible kind of more or less, in many cases, just alludes to particular things. And so we had to, at first, nail down what we know for sure. We know that, uh, that there is a, a character commonly referred to as Satan in Scripture. Um, if that's a proper name or if he has a different proper name than, you know, whatever but but there 's this obviously this main antagonist of the brothers that is an accuser, we know, and uh, he has somehow uh, fallen from away from the Lord in some ways, um, that there has been a rift in the heavenly uh, realm, if you will, where there were angels that went with him. We know know those things for sure, even if we don't know too many details about them. We know that there is uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the heavenly realm. We also know that there is a, a, a legion, if you will, of angels, both good and bad. And as far as most of what we think of when we think of the unseen realm... That's mostly it. I think, at least for me, I, I know I can speak for me, and whenever I used to think of the unseen realm, that's, that's most of where my thoughts went, was God and then angels and demons, and then that's, that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, what it seems as though is, is happening in the Bible, in the biblical narrative, is that it begins to open our eyes, I think in some cases, to uh, a, a, a whole realm of creature creatures and with different jobs and roles and responsibilities. And, and one of those that we've uh, come to see is uh, often given this designation as Elohim or the sons of Elohim. In some cases, it's called the divine council. But it seems as though that there's this legion of kind of angelic beings that are commonly referred to as gods. And when we see the word Elohim, we tend to translate that just G-O-D. And in most cases, we translate that with a capital G-O-D. That's referring to the God of the universe, Yahweh Elohim. He's over all things. He's timeless. He's, He's... uh, omniscient and he's omnipotent and he's the creator of all things. And so to think that there is this, there's these other beings that are referred to by the same term is we kind of put at arm's distance and we go, that's, that's blasphemy. That's not at all what we see in Hebrew, actually. We see that the term Elohim is more just a generic term of a species of, of, uh, of spiritual beings of which Yahweh Elohim is the only. He is the creator of all things. He is the Lord of all creation. There are none like him. He is exclusive in his his attributes. But there is another uh, group of beings that are created by him that are used to uh, rule and have some sort of governing authority. And as we dive into some passages tonight, we'll see a little bit more of that as we go on. What we saw last time, or a couple times ago, was in Deuteronomy 32, Moses Uh, basically goes back and rehearses the story of the children of Israel. But he tells it from the perspective of Yahweh, how Yahweh created his people and how he came to his people. And what what he brings up is this picture from Genesis chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel is being built and all the nations are gathered together speaking one common language. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 that, when, that God divided the nations up amongst the sons of God, as many as were the sons of God. So he divided the nations up. And what is clear, we talked about a couple weeks ago, in that picture, or what, what at least it seems like is happening in that picture in Genesis 11, is that God had told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And instead, they congregated in one place and they began to build what it seems to be is a temple. And to be kind of to put themselves at, make themselves gods as it were, and what God is doing it seems in Genesis eleven by dividing the nations is a form of judgment on them, and what He's doing is giving them over to these um, sons of God, these gods as it were, uh, to basically to serve them. It's it's kind of a Romans one eighteen to thirty two situation it seems like where God gives them over to um, the judgment, basically. And so they're, they're, they're uh, ser- serving these gods, and he's kind of apportioned the, these gods that are rebellious and that are also facing judgment. He's apportioned these gods certain territories that they're over. They're, they're ruling and, and sort of having some sort of authority over. And we refer, I referred to this as, uh, it's not just by me, many others have referred to it as cosmic geography. That just like we have a, a territorial boundaries here on earth, there's sort of a a cosmic geography that goes on as well where these sons of God are given certain territories to, to rule and reign over. The reason why I think some of this stuff is 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 important, uh, we don't I don't necessarily want to make too big of a deal out of it, but some why some of it is is particularly important is because when we think of the unseen realm in just strictly a flat here is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and here are angels and demons. It, it, when we get to certain passages in Scripture, it's very hard to make sense of them. What does that really mean? So we talked about some of the Scriptures last time, like Daniel 10, where there, there's a, a, a uh, an interchange, a conversation that's happening between Daniel and an angel, where the angel tells Daniel, I would have been here sooner, but I was held up because the uh, the angel over Persia held me up, and I had to you know fight him alone for twenty one days and finally, Michael the Archangel came to give me some relief, and I got over here as soon as I could and so a lot of times with those passages, when we have that sort of flat cosmology, that flat thought of the, of the unseen realm, it, it we go what, what is that you know but when you start to understand the dispersion of people and giving them over to to the uh, pagan gods that they seem bent on worshiping anyway it starts to make sense of what's going on there in the unseen realm and what's going on in those conversations we also talked about 2 kings 5:15 to 19 where naaman is healed And as part of his healing, as a celebration for his healing, he wants to take some of the earth from God's land back with him wherever he's going. And so it it, it seems as though what's happening is here's God that has crafted a people for himself and given them a land that he is over, and Naaman is recognizing this place is God's place. I want to take some of God's place back with me where there's pagan gods served in the foreign country, which lines up really well with the first Samuel passage that we talked about also last time, 1 Samuel 26, 17 to 20, where uh, David is kicked out. He's on the run from Saul, and he's kicked out of the promised land, and he tells Saul, uh, if you've kicked me out or if your men have kicked me out, they've left me out here to serve other gods. But we know that, that David is, like if we were kicked out of America for whatever reason, and we had to live in Europe. Well, that wouldn't stop us from serving God there in Europe, would it? Absolutely not. We don't think of it in those terms. Um, but David is is saying, basically, that, that, that Yahweh's land is there, and to serve Yahweh properly, I need to be there. And out here, I'm left to the you know other gods. I'm left in the wilderness to serve other gods, and so uh, due to this kind of idea of cosmic the cosmic geographical worldview, these these it seems as though these pagan kings that are outside the the land that are uh, over these pagan territories have some sort of correlation to the god they serve, and so we looked at Isaiah chapter 14, which we had read a few weeks prior to that, and we said, look. A lot of people connect this to Satan, but you can see that as you read Isaiah 14, he's really talking to the king of Babylon. And he says to the king of Babylon, you've fallen, you're, you're, you, are, you are mighty, you are bigger than everybody else, but you, you've fallen. And, and uh, a lot of people connect that, and historically it has been connected to Satan himself. But it doesn't make sense when you, just, uh, when you just read it on the surface. It looks like, well, that's talking to the king of Babylon. But what it seems is really going on, if we think about it from a, a cosmic geographical worldview, is these pagan kings are the king of the pagan world, just as the god they serve, Satan, if you will, is king of the unseen realm and has some sort of governing influence over this individual. And as the king falls, so does his God, right? As the king falls, so does his God. We're going to see that even more clearly, I think, in Ezekiel 28. Um, but it's, it's common that there's these connections between um, when, when, we, when, they, when people go to war, when countries go to war, that it's not just a battle between the countries. In the Old Testament, I'm talking. Not just a battle between the countries. It's a battle between the gods. Whose God is mightier? Right? We see this all over Isaiah. Isaiah, Hezekiah is really frustrated and he's feeling threatened by Assyria. And Assyria sends its emissary out to to meet them. And the emissary says to the people that are sitting on the wall, look, uh, all the... People before you have all prayed to their gods, and we came in and mowed them down. Their God didn't help them, their God didn't come and, and rescue them. So don't bother calling to your God. We're going to mow him down. So no worries. Now, often when we read that, we think that this guy believes that his God is the only God and there are no other gods. That's not the worldview he's coming from. He actually does believe there are multiple gods that you serve your God, I serve my God, and we go to battle, we're battling, the gods are battling. And what he's trying to say is that my God is bigger than your God, essentially. And we know that God in the end kills him, <laughs> kills the king of, of, of Assyria. But, and it's kind of a, almost sort of a comical story. But, um, but it's, it's a battle of gods. And so when, when the king falls, it's a sign that his God has fallen as well, that his God is weak and, and, and impotent. And so these biblical authors, when he, when he takes the story of, uh, like Isaiah, when he takes the story of Babylon falling, he's showing the pagan God as well that he serves, in, in, in this case, Satan, uh, falling as well. We're going to see that also in Ezekiel 28. So go ahead and open there. And I want to read this chapter. We can look at what's going on. And then we're going to transition to uh, kind of connect the pieces, hopefully. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself, and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. But your great wisdom in your trade, you ha- uh, by your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God: because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore behold, I will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Okay, now verses 1 to 8 are pretty clearly about the king of Tyre. He's told to make a, a, a proclamation about, uh, to the king of Tyre he is, um, he is, so, and, and all the things that he describes here are, it, it seems to be about the king of Tyre, um, so everything seems to be on the up and up. He's, he's making a proclamation about the king of Tyre. He's accused of extraordinary arrogance. You see that there, the second point there? He is accused of extraordinary arrogance. Verse 2, you see he considers himself uh, a god who sits in the seat of the gods and then verses 2 to 6 just basically tell him, you are no God, um, you are certainly not the most high God. Um, and then we get uh, two more verses here, 9 and nine and 10. He says, Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners for, I, shall, uh, for I, I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Okay. So it seems as though um, here we have pretty much just a standard proclamation against the king of Tyre. But then you'll notice, it, starting in verse 11, it starts to turn. And there's some different language that comes in that seems a bit strange for this kind of lament over the king of Tyre. So there's a lamentation that goes up about the king of Tyre. He says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of Man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, "Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald. Carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade... You were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes of the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become to a dread, you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. The, you notice that there's a, there's a turn here. What are some of the strange words that you see? Kind of make you go, what? What are some of those? Gives a location there. Yeah, you were, <laughs> you were in Eden, the Garden of God. So that's suspicious language. What? Yeah, a cherub. What? What are cherubs? Do we? We, we talked about this a while back. What? What ba- ba- best we can tell? What do cherubs do? They yeah, they worship God, and, and and when we see them, they're guarding the throne of God. It seems as though they're guarding the mercy seat. They're they're where they appear. They seem to be surrounding the throne in some capacity. So, uh, don't picture fat little babies. I don't think that's what's going on here. I'm, I'm picturing like mighty warrior kind of kind of beings, as it were. Um, uh, yeah, I would think uh I would probably die on sight. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if I could venture a move. I'm not sure. <laughs> you venture outside my pay grade there, I think Timothy, but uh, <laughs> um so yeah, you see this uh start to turn in verses 12 to 13. He mentions uh, you were in the in Eden, the Garden of God. Well, I mean, you've got Adam and Eve there. Is this? I mean, the only other person that could be talking about is is maybe Adam, but I don't think so. Um, This is probably making a connection between Satan and the King of Tyre. So, when you ask, you you have to ask the question: Was this a lamentation? If 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 this is talking about Satan, because obviously it sounds very. Kind of similar to the story that we know about Satan. If this is talking about Satan, then is this talking about him or is it talking about the king of Tyre? And the answer to that is yes. It's, it's, it's both. Here's a um, pagan god who is on the, at the height of uh, the pagan world. And he's mowing down country after country. No country can stand in his way. His god is triumphing over every God that he comes in contact with. So then, when he is defeated and when he falls, what does it say about his God? And so the lamentation that's taken up is not just over the king of Tyre, but the subsequent God that he serves that also fell. Right? And and it seems as though the connection's being made that just as your God is inferior and thought he was superior you indeed have have fallen, just as Satan's fallen. Couldn't it, stand Couldn't it stand with as just being a connection to the king of Tyre? No,
1: no, just in this part portion of it, just being a reference to Satan. That's the... <laughs>
0: Okay, if I was... The question was... I need to repeat this because everybody that listens to the recording tells me they didn't hear the question. So I'm going to... The question was... Let me make sure I'm hearing you right. Can it not just be a standalone reference to Satan himself without being a reference to the king of Tyre? And the, the answer... The problem that I would have with that is in verse 12. Because he's told to take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. That's the reason... Why the connection? I think is there, and why the the author wants you to see the connection is I, I think our minds are supposed to be drawn to the King of Tyre who has fallen, and then but then the description is, um, the, the, you know, there's the phrase um, "you are what you worship," uh, you know, um, and and it it seems as though that's the connection that's being made, and and I think there's plenty that have read this the other way of what you're than what you're asking where they've read it as strictly a just the king of tyre that's being lamented over here but then that would make some that would make strange, uh, Did you strange. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't think Satan has ex uh, wait, I don't think Tyre has exclusive rights to Satan. The question was about um, the connection between Nebuchadnezzar conquering Tyre. I don't think the falling there is the throwing in the lake of fire. I don't think that's what he's talking about. The demise of a king. Yeah, I I, th- I think all so um how do I, how would I say this? Um, I th- I think the 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 way Old Testament prophecy typically comes to fulfillment is in is more in phases than anything else. That often you get the initial falling of Satan, and then you get. Uh, which is a, a, sim, a symbol or a, uh, a type of the fall he will eventually face. Do so you think
1: people observe the fall, observe him physically falling and
0: being turned um, Jesus makes mention of the fact that he sees Satan fall. And that's in... How does that, after his work on the cross? that is in connection to the disciples going to cast out demons in his name. And um, so I think... The falling of Satan is uh, is first a power issue, where he is he is, he's he has fallen and his power has been stripped of him, and then subsequently it's a casting down forever, which and the 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 losing of his power is a a sign of things to come. You're saying the language is symbolic here? Uh, no, I think that the the Pagan king crumbling under uh, or falling, the pagan king falling is uh, in in some ways uh, symbolic, yeah, of Satan not being as powerful as he thinks he is. So, and every pagan king that falls uh, to Yahweh or to anybody else is. It's a testimony to the fact that you're not as strong as you think you are. Yeah, Blake. Yeah, when I read this, I think anytime I read Hebrew poetry, I just think of what a
2: confusing bit it is. But especially like verse 16, you see, it it seems to bounce back and forth between the king and Satan. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah there's certainly it, this is certainly a reference to the king of Tyre absolutely and it's also a reference I think to the spiritual entities that are he, he would, he's fueled by or or however you say it because you're you're right when you when you say the, the bouncing back of Hebrew poetry it, it is very difficult to ascertain all that they're getting at there but I, I think though those kind of unite those images the best is is that connection between the pagan god the pagans and the gods that they serve. Go ahead, Timothy. You also have multiple fulfillment and types yeah right. not in every detail show, right? for example Christ our so right. the demise and so forth that's right. Show certain aspects of that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because they all have a
2: God. Yeah. And I think what Scripture's
0: trying to point out is that they're not. Right. I mean, you think they are, and they yeah. have some limited power, but in actuality, that's been dealt with. That power is, inf- is, is inferior. Yeah, the God doesn't have. Doug pointed out Absolutely. when Christ, what he did on the cross, he did such a multitude of things. Right. One of those, Colossians says, he disarmed. Disarmed. Yes. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you know when it comes to the connection between, uh, like Ezekiel twenty-eight, Isaiah fourteen, the connection between those pagan gods and Satan or those pagan gods and demonic powers. Um, really, when we're reading those passages, it, it, we're we're looking at them and making the best assessment we can, because where it's intentionally veiled, it's intentionally vague. But it seems as though that's the direction it's pointing, and again, that's why that's why I say and I stress so often that like these are not hills I'm dying on. They're just simply where I think the the Bible is pointing us. And when we start to see the, this this language of divine counsels and things like that going on, it seems as though those are the connections that are intentionally being built for us. Um, but again, it, you know, there's been lots of debate about this for for you know years, and so that's the reason why. Um,
1: Right,
0: so, right. I, I right, right. I can't Right, right. I do think, though, Hebrew poetry will, um, will utilize words like that to emphasize the point of how far the king has gone from where he began. And, and, I, and so I think, in relation to Satan, um, you can obviously see the connection, but in, a, in fulfilling that in a multitude of levels in a poetic way, um, the king of Tyre being now so extraordinarily prideful. Um, so I, th- but here, here's the deal, though. Like when it comes to that, I think the mandatory, like one thing that you have to see in the text is the connection to the king of Tyre. The connection to Satan is the one that that leaves kind of. I think this is what he's saying because he tells you take this lamentation up over the king of Tyre. So there's there's no way we can kind of get out of this this being some sort of referent to the king of Tyre but then we also see that there's some pretty strong connections to something else and it seems as though the biblical author is trying to make those connections between the two that this is the the pagan king that's fallen and the pagan god that he serves has fallen like unto him at the least things are not just right that's right, that's exactly right. Uh, he said, um, "Things that are happening are not just physical. Things in Washington, things wherever, are not just physical." That's right. Well, let's look on the on the, the backside here. Um, you have your your passages there. Um, there's enough here that, that we won't be able to cover them all tonight. We'll get to some of them next week. But in Job one six to twelve and Job two one to six, we have these sort of strange scenes that people have we've read. A lot, and don't totally know what to do with um, all the time. But it, it, we'll we'll go ahead and read um, Job one six to twelve. Who will read that for me? Go ahead, Timothy. Read it nice and loud. Go ahead and read the next one too. Job 2, 1 to 6. So we have uh, two passages here, both of which the sons of God are presented in the text as sort of a council that come around the Lord. Uh, so there's that first little blank there. There's, the, the sons of God are presented as a council uh, before the Lord. And Satan is presented as really rightfully being among those presenting themselves before God. Now, his name, we've talked about this before, but his name is Probably not a proper name, and the reason is because the word "the" actually does occur before the name, and the word uh, "Satan" means, as you heard me say this past Sunday, means accuser or adversary, and so it probably designates his title or role uh, within the divine counsel, that he his role is a one of prosecution. He's a prosecuting attorney. And so he goes um, to the earth. He's roaming the earth. We assume, therefore, he's roaming, looking for someone to prosecute and figuring out who would be a really good candidate to bring before the Lord in their sins. And so the Lord brings to his mind uh, the ser- his servant, Job. Have you considered my servant, Job? Uh, he's blameless and upright, he's, he's called. and uh, And so... When, when God brings him to mind, there's that, the word, Doug, again, they're blameless. Uh, here's, here's Job, who serves the Lord and who's a righteous man. And, um, and so Satan obviously kind of pushes back against God. And he says, you know, I, well, obviously, because you, you haven't touched him. And does he serve you? you blessed him so much. Well, why wouldn't he serve you? Of course he wouldn't. But let me touch him. And see what happens, and so he he starts playing the role of the accuser uh, throughout the rest of the book. Um, so what what the reason why I think this passage is really important is because um, it demonstrates that God this this uh, third blank here is that um, that he uh, he rules through a council of created angelic beings that he that that's the way he rules, and and I think that probably. Uh, at least on first reading, makes us feel a little bit uneasy. Like, I, I don't understand that. I don't think it should because I think it's very similar to the way he rules earth through us. Um, he creates us in, in his image to have dominion over the birds of the air, over the fish of the sea, over the, the land and the, the everything that is on the earth. And we're here to steward it and take care of it. And so he takes care of animals, through us, through his created beings. That's how he um, governs the world that we live in. So it seems as though the spiritual realm is, has a lot of parallels in that sense, that there is uh, 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 messengers and angelic beings that he rules through. Does he have to do it that way? Absolutely not. Could he snap his fingers and everything uh, take place? Y- yes, absolutely. But he, he doesn't do it that way. It seems as though he, he has, a, a, has given a ruling authority of some sort, to these created angelic beings. Um, but then in chapter 4 and five, or four and 15 of Job, you've got those two passages down there. The uh, Eliphaz, I think it's Eliphaz if I remember right, um, makes a comment in both of these that just kind of give you insight into the worldview that, that he has, that he's coming from, what he understands about the unseen realm. And he says, Can mortal man be in, in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he, cha- he, charges, uh, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. And then the next one, What is, um, what is man, that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman, that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. So uh, here, here's the friends of Job playing the role of accuser. Job is saying, I, I haven't sinned. I haven't, I'm, this isn't as a result of, of my iniquities that God is punishing me. And the, the friends are going, no. Uh, there's no one that's righteous. There's no one that's pure. I mean, even, and he points to this heavenly council. Even there's, Heavenly beings that angels that he charges with error, how much more so you, a, a man who lives in a clay house? <laughs> right? Um, he says, Uh, what is man that he can be pure, or born, um, or, or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure on his side. I think referring to the same thing that it seems as though, even even early on, we think Job was, was written, there's a there's the understanding that there is a, a rift. In the heavenly uh, realm, a division between uh, good and and evil, and that there are angels who have who have fallen and that God holds responsible for their fallenness and so if even that is taking place in the heavens, then surely you job, have become defiled and and sinned and that 's why you 're undergoing this kind of persecution, but it sort of gives you an insight into their the worldview that there is this heavenly council that uh, that meets but then that, um, this last blank here that, um, there were some that were not righteous, that even amongst the sons of God, there were some that were not righteous. Yeah. Questions about that? just if he gives authority, if he gives authority, then what? Then he holds them accountable. Then he holds them accountable. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. There's, there's an account to to be held, and it seems as though that they're, they're understanding that even, um, in the old testament that's their their understanding of the world it's similar to what we even talked about at the very beginning was we know that there's been this fall there's been this rift that there are uh, evil let's call them angels evil angelic beings that are um that are accusers or that are tempters or whatever and so it seems as though that carries on through even early on in the old testament they understood the same thing yeah right that's right yeah
1: Yep. This isn't I'm aware. taken yeah. literally. And, and one of the reasons I give is that in no other place in Scripture do you see this idea that God is um allowing
0: people to or beings to come before Him and make decisions. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's go to 1 Kings 22. <laughs> because there are many other examples of that being true. Uh, I don't don't recall Eliphaz Bob. Esau. Okay, there you go. Um, all right, so First um, Kings 22. We're going to do this one really quickly, and then we'll, we'll leave Genesis 6 for next week. Um, but First Kings 22, let's go ahead and, and read that. Somebody read that nice and loud for me. Isn't that a fun passage? <laughs> um, so here we've got this scene, and, and, and let me re- remind you of what's happening here. So um, Syria and Israel, I- Israel's in the northern kingdom. You have the southern kingdom of Judah. The, n- the northern kingdom and Syria have had three years of peace. and But Ramoth Gilead is possessed, rightfully so, by Syria and by the Syrian king, which was originally a part of Dan, I believe, or another tribe, I can't remember. But it was originally Israel's. And um, and so the king of, of Israel, Ahab, wants that area back. And so he brings Jehoshaphat, who is the king of the southern kingdom in, in Judah, to him. And he says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we form a coalition here and we'll go and we'll get this territory back? And Jehoshaphat is like, okay, well, that sounds fine. But I just need to know, is the Lord with us on this? And so they ask some of the, the prophets and the Prophets say, oh, he's with you, he's with you, he's with you. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, is there, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else that speaks for the Lord? And, the, and Ahab goes, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah. But I don't like him because every time I ask him a question, he doesn't tell me things that I like. <laughs> it's literally that, and it's so funny. <laughs> so they bring Micaiah to him, and they ask Micaiah the question. And Micaiah, or maybe it might be Micah, but anyway, they, they ask him the question. Uh, and at first, Micaiah goes, oh, yeah, go out into battle. Oh, the Lord's with you. I mean, like, latent with sarcasm. And it's obvious that it's latent with sarcasm because Ahab picks up on it. And he goes, see, what I tell you? This guy over here is, is terrible, and he never tells me the good news. Why don't you tell me the truth? What's really going to happen? And he says, um, that's when Micaiah says, I... Saw this vision. And it says, uh, he says in verse 19, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, that's another phrase that's used as that, uh, the armies of the Lord, the host of heaven, um, standing beside him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? So he's putting this question out to this divine council of, of sorts. And Um, one said one thing and another said another. Uh, Who who will entice Abraham to go go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So God says he's going to die. Who's going to entice him to go up to Ramoth Gilead? And one says one thing, one says another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I'll entice him, I'll do it. (laughs) Okay, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit and uh, in the mouth of all his prophets and the Lord says, uh, yeah, that'll work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here's this this, uh, council. this second blank here so that I don't get in trouble for not filling in the blanks. I know somebody gets on me. Uh, Ahab wanted Jehoshaphat to join forces um, with him in uh, in a plan to break uh, peace by attacking Ramoth-Gilead, which was under Syrian control. And then um, so in in verses nineteen to twenty, the divine council proposes a solution, and Yahweh grants that solution. And really, all, the the reason why I think that's important is not only because it's confusing, but it also sort of makes sense. If if the Yahweh is dealing in this uh, ruling in this divine council of sorts, then you have um, a council taking place right here of how, how will this happen, and the, them uh, proposing a solution, and him granting them the the. Privilege, if you will, of ruling in that capacity. Um, it, it seems very strange, if not for understanding Yahweh ruling the universe in this capacity, or at least ruling the unseen realm in this capacity. Good. Um, I don't know that I know what the question was that was being well, asked. Well, I, I mean,
1: it, it doesn't seem to be in, in the sense of the First Kings. God is the one in charge. And he's basically saying, "This is the this is the theory." Now, let me have some tactics. Who uh, who has some ideas here? Even though God could have figured all this out, and so. And, well.
0: It's like a completely different um so in in his in uh a- first kings a- <laughs> sorry in first kings uh ahab is gonna die no i, I know but he deserved to die okay but he's gonna kill him
1: didn't deserve i mean if you want to put it
0: you know it, it, but i think here but here's you you get to the end of job and job a- reveals a- to you the 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 I'm not talking about the blessing before that a- when you get to the end of Job Job reveals to you the meaning of the book, or the purpose of the book, the purpose of the suffering. It brings out in Job a confession I know you can do all things, and that your purpose cannot be thwarted. Well, I mean- Yeah, now, I, and so I think the concern for some people is the Lord um, allowing Satan to do these things and even to the point where he brings Job's name up before Satan to test him. But um, the, the trial that Job goes through is not unlike Christian trial. Um, there are many that... We've prayed for him today, brothers and sisters around the world that are are suffering and that is at the hands of Satan. Is it outside of the realm of of God? I don't think so. Is it well within his control? I do think so. Is he refining those Christians in the midst of trial? Yes as troubling and as difficult as it is for me to say being in America and under freedom and able to get in my car and drive home and not fear the threat of being arrested as soon as I walk out the door for you know, being in a church. As hard as that is for me, having that kind of freedom to say of the Christian brother in Iran who's locked in prison right now, that the Lord is refining him, I still have to believe in the scriptures that it's true. And so Sometimes I think people may have a problem with the Lord testing His His people in that way, but and trying His people in that way. But I think the Bible bears out that that's what He does. That's exactly what He does. That He refines us in a fire, and that sometimes it's it's tough. And so when I look at what jo- what happened in Job, it seems like at the very end the impurity is burned out and it comes to the surface really quick in Job's repentance because Job obviously has something to repent from and has something in his heart that's coming to the surface, even though he does not give Satan what Satan wants incur- to curse God and die. But I don't think he's, uh, I mean, Satan's role is to do exactly that. I mean, even in Revelation, the, the point that the angels make to the, when Satan is cast down is, uh, you know, rejoice, O heavens, for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down, but watch out, O earth, and see, for Satan has come down to you in great fury, for he knows his time is short. Um, that's his job. As far as God's, I don't think it's God's wrath at all. Job is his. I think it's so. I don't think it's the wrath that that he's facing. It, I think that's true of everybody, though. I, th- I think no one's promised safety from the wrath of Satan. In fact, we're warned that the wrath of Satan is coming because he knows his time is short. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, next week we'll uh, we'll pick up in Genesis six one to four, and then we'll probably have which is going to be going to be a good one. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we'll uh, pro- probably, hopefully next week will be the last uh, week in this and then we'll we'll go on to man, mankind and talk about mankind and we'll leave kind of the unseen realm. Timothy, one <laughs> last thing. <laughs> <laughs> I won't repeat that one for the recording. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Uh, let's pray, <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly Father. I thank you for just the time to be able to study Your Word and just to look in. Uh, what scripture says and try, try to make sense of it. And, and so I pray for um, wisdom even as we think about some of these things that you, you're doing and, and have done and, and how, you, uh, how you rule and how you reign. And, and um, I pray that as we dwell on those things, it drives us deeper into a relationship with you and um, calls us to take our, our faith even ser- more serious than, we, than um, we initially might. And that uh, it causes us to have great hope and trust in Christ who has uh, conquered all. And so we thank you for that. uh, In Jesus' name, amen.